you would, turn back in your scriptures to Isaiah 9. We have, as I said a little earlier, we have been talking about what the true meaning of Christmas is. And we have kind of like, you remember the game? This is back when I was a kid. I got Rock'em Sock'em Robots for Christmas. Remember that? Well, that's kind of what we've been doing. We've been going back and forth, fighting it out between the difference between the cultural meaning of Christmas and the Christian meaning of it. And I, I want to illustrate the difference in a couple different ways this morning. And I'm going to do it by referring to a famous philosopher in American culture. And his name was Theodore S. Geisel. You know him as Dr. Seuss. Um, he wrote numerous books for children, but he wrote the one that's most famous, and maybe you've watched the little animated version of it on television, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And if you know the story, you'll know that the Who's are all down in Whoville, and every year they celebrate Christmas, and they come out, and they stand around in a circle around the Christmas tree, and they have all kinds of fun and games, kind of like you would picture the average household in America to be. The Grinch on Mount Crumpet, though, doesn't like that situation, and he has to stop it from coming. That's his own words in the story. And so he devises a plan about how he's going to steal Christmas. And so when they're all sleeping, you know the story if you've read it or seen it. And he sneaks into town and with his little dog Max who has the antlers that are too heavy for his head and all of that. And he gets into town and he takes everything they have. He piles it up on this gigantic sleigh. He goes out of town before sunrise and he's up on the top. And he's waiting for everyone to come out. He's going to... He can't wait for them to just break into tears and lose it all, basically, because their Christmas is gone. But to his utter dismay and shock, they all come out, and they realize that he has taken everything, all the stuff of Christmas, and they still do what they always have done. They all still gather around the tree in the center of town, and they hold hands, and to his utter shock, they still sing And only as Dr. Seuss could write, here's what the Grinch's response was. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. Remember, he pulls Max's head down right next to him, right? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and he puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Listen to this. What if Christmas, he thought, does not come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? The very next scene... The sled's going off this hill, and he has to grab it, and it's being pulled over, and they're trying to stop it. But then he realizes the true meaning of Christmas, and here it is. Then the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. Where did he get the strength from? Where did he get, you know what he got the strength from? From Dr. Seuss's understanding of the true meaning of Christmas. And the true meaning of Christmas that made his heart expand three sizes that day was this. Christmas Day, he says, is in our grasp as long as we have, what? Hands to clasp. And as they're sitting around the tree or standing around the tree singing, they say, welcome Christmas, bring your light. And if you look at, you remember the, the anime, the light is right there in the middle of all the people 
and they, as they continue to sing, the light goes from where they are up into the sky. See, for them, the Christmas light that shines in a darkness that had taken away their Christmas, it started with them. It started right where they were, and it started down here and went up there. See, that's the cultural meaning of Christmas. They, even the world knows that Christmas and the true meaning of it is more than just something you get in a store. Even Dr. Seuss would say, there has to be a little bit more. And the last scene is the Grinch at the Christmas table after he gave all the gifts back and Cindy Lou Who is next to him and Max is on the floor next to her. And they're all eating. And, and the last one, the major, it says, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. In other words, hey, if you let Grinches at your table and we all just get along and we hold hands, you see, that's the real light. See, the real light is a Christmas light that's inside of us. It's inside of humanity. And if we would all just do the right thing, see, we wouldn't have the darkness. We, we could have the light. And the light starts right here with us. That's the cultural meaning of Christmas. But the Christian meaning of Christmas is not that Christmas is just a little bit more. It's a whole lot more. It's, it is more than a store, and it's more than just people. There's a real core meaning of Christmas that Christians have that no one else has, and that is that the darkness can only be dispelled by a light that doesn't come from inside of us. It doesn't start around a tree with people holding hands. Rather, the Christian, Christian message is that Christmas and its light is outside of us. It doesn't start down here and go up there. Rather, it starts up there and comes down here. Just the very opposite. And see, that is exactly the message of the Christmas prophecy of Isaiah. They were in deep darkness on every level. And what they needed was a light, but not a light that came from within them. Not a light that humanity could muster up or configure all on its own. No, no, quite different. The message of Isaiah is that a great light has come into those who walk darkness, walk in darkness, and it's an outside light. It's a light that doesn't come from a store. It doesn't come from other people. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. And see, that's the great light. And Isaiah is very clear to say this, and it has shown on them. It's shown on them. See, if God has shown his gospel floodlight on you and showed you where the real darkness was, the darkness that's inside you because of your sin, see, if that's the case, here's what he says in the remaining part of the passage we haven't covered yet. He says, if you look in verse 3, that if, if God's light has shown on you, you know what it'll produce? It will produce joy. Three times in verse 3, Isaiah says, it's increased it's joy. They rejoice as the joy of harvest time. He, he wants you to get it, that, that the result, the consequence, the product of having God from the outside, from heaven, shine his light on earth, and particularly into your life, it, it changes your life. And one of the things it brings is this extraordinary joy. Not this usual joy, but a different kind of joy, a lasting joy, a pure joy. Now, you're going to be in the stores and you're going to hear this song. You may have sung it. You may like it. And it's all fine and good. But listen to this song. It's the cultural view of where the joy comes from. We all know it. And perhaps you could sing it by heart. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. But listen to the line. Have yourself, yourself a merry little Christmas. The song goes, and you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Not, not a light in the sky, but light meaning 
laughter. Not so heavy with all the pressures. How, how do you get through the pressures? How do you get through the darkness? How do you get through it? If you want joy, happiness, Mary, it, it is. Let your heart be light. And, and here's what it says. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. See, if you've got darkness and you have troubles, here's how you can have a light heart in them. Here's how you can have joy and happiness in them. And, and here's, in another word, it says this in another way. Let your heart be gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. If you want to push the darkness, get it away. You want to get it far out there, far beyond your reach. You want to really conquer the darkness? Here's what the song says. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. See, see, the answer is the light is inside of you. You just get some really good friends around you, and there's certainly nothing wrong. Those are all great things, but it's not the source of where the light comes from. It's certainly not the source where you're going to get a merry heart or a light heart. You're not going to get lasting joy from there. And listen to this. It's even more deep, really, believe it or not, the song is. And it says, hang a shining star on the highest bough. In other words, you have to hang the star. You have to get the light. It's one that you make, and you put it up as high as you can on the top of the tree. Why? So that it can spread to everyone else in the world. Why? Because here's where you get a merry heart. Here's how you have a merry Christmas. You have to hang the light. You have to do it. And you can find it with people around you, or things around you, or your troubles being gone. And see, the Christian view of Christmas said that's not where joy is found. That's not where you get a Merry Christmas from. That's not where your heart can find being light from. No, it's not in the shining star that you hang. It's one that's way beyond us. It's one that God gives to us. It's not inside of us. It's outside of us. So let me say it as clear as I possibly can. Christmas joy only comes from Christ Jesus. Christmas joy only comes from Christ Jesus. And that's why in our text... Isaiah wants to tell you what it'll look like if you have it. If you have Christmas joy, if you have the real Christmas joy, not the pseudo one that the world gives, but the one that comes from God through Jesus Christ, there'll be three things that are true in your life. And if you look in the text, if you would, they're all marked off by the little word four, verse four, verse five, and verse six. See it together? All of those verses are marked off by the beginning of the sentence being the little word four because they, what they tell us, it, it marks off the three reasons or the three examples or descriptions of what Christmas joy really is. And so I wanted to take the time this morning and unpack them one at a time. And I want you, as I'm doing that, to ask yourself this question. Do you have the true meaning of Christmas? Do you and regularly do you experience the Christmas joy that can only come from Christ Jesus? The first one is this in verse 4. Christmas joy comes through the great triumph of Jesus. The verse reads, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Notice in verse 3 and 4 both. See the pronoun, you have. See it? Verse 3, you have, you have. Verse 4, you have. In other words, where does the victory come over the darkness? And from militarily, where in Israel, where did they defeat the Assyrians? How could they defeat the neighbors or the nations around them that wanted to attack them and take over and get a different king in there? Where did it come from? And Isaiah is very clear. Here's what he wants us to connect. He wants us to connect the joy of God with the victory of God. You see that? 
He says, you want to have the joy, this extraordinary joy that's like the harvest time? I mean, when the fruit and, and the crops are bountiful, when you have won a victory, verse 3, and you get spoils of war, and you get to take home all the treasures, and you still have freedom, you know, the exhilaration and the excitement that you feel? You want to share in that joy? You want to have that joy every day? Here's what he says. That victory comes from God. Because here's what he says. God, you have done this. You have, you have, you have given us the victory. But before God stepped into the picture, you know what our lives were like? It was like Israel. Notice the three words. In verse 4, the burden, the staff of the rod, it says, you know, those are all exile terms. Those are all military defeat terms. In other words, they had been defeated. They had been taken into chains. They had been taken out of the land into exile. They had lost the battle. And God had to step in. And when God steps in, here's what Christmas joy is. God stepping into your battle. God stepping into your fight. God stepping into your darkness. And he wins a victory. But but watch. It's not just any type of victory. It's not your typical type or your usual type of victory. He qualifies it with this little phrase. See it in verse 4? As on the day of Midian. And that is a reference to the Old Testament story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7 and 8. Do you remember what happened in that day? Well, Israel was going to be attacked, and they were by the Midians, the Midianites. There were 135,000 of them. Here's the description of their army in Judges 7 12. The Midianites were as numerous as locusts, as the sand by the seashore. When you looked out on their army, it looked like there was no end to it. There were so many of them. Now they have 135,000, and here's the big problem in that battle that day. Israel only had 32,000, right? So I did my math. Actually, I had the computer do it for me. That's 23.7%. So basically, they were outnumbered four to one. Right? So Israel was outnumbered four to one, and so and they didn't have as good a weapon. So they were really gonna be they're gonna lose and they were gonna lose big time. And so God comes up with a strategy in Judges 7. Here's what he tells Gideon. Gideon, I want you to have less guys than what you have. And that must have blown his mind, wouldn't you? I mean, that's not the military strategy that you usually come up with. 132,000 verses uh, 135 verses 32. And you want me to have less? He said, Yes. So it goes down from 32,000 to 10,000, and all the way down to 300. And I did the math on that. So God took them down from being 4 to 1 odds to 400 to 1 odds. That's crazy, isn't it? Why would he go down to 300 men? 300 versus 135,000. Listen to God's explanation so that we can understand what Isaiah is saying. Judges 7 and verse 2 says... Here's why God did it. Lest Israel boast over me, over God, saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you see that? And a little later in verse 7, here's what God says. And with the 300 men, I will save you. Here's what God wanted Gideon and Israel to think. And here's what he wanted Isaiah's prophecy to mean. And here's what he wants you and I to get it this morning. Listen, listen. God's way of victory is never what you think it will be. There's going to be this great triumph. And then when the Prince of Peace comes and the Messiah comes, Isaiah prophesies, he's going to give you a victory that is unequaled by any other victory, greater than any other victory, including Gideon's. But it's not going to be what you think. You know how you get lasting joy? 
It's not where you think. It's not what you think. It's going to come through an unusual type of victory. And here's the key. It's not the way of strength. It's the way of weakness. It's God putting you in such a place that you are so outnumbered, so outgunned, that you have absolutely no hope that you could ever change anything about your circumstances and you could never win the victory that you don't, got, you don't have it in and of yourself. Spurgeon said it this way, you need to be saved from yourself, not by yourself. And, and, and that's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that God has designed salvation in such a way that it knocks down any thoughts of our own self-sufficiency. So the Apostle Paul pens these words in Romans 5, 6. When we were still weak. Did you get that? When we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to think of ourselves as weak and ungodly. But the message of Christmas means that every single one of us, because of our sin, we are too weak to save ourselves. It means that we are too sinful, too spiritually helpless, too spiritually lost to be saved in any kind of other way. So this morning you're here and you're listening to me, and if you say, Pastor Walker, I'm offended by this idea that God has to save me. I've heard people say, I'm I'm offended because I don't think I'm that bad and I don't think that God is that mad. See, when you say that sort of thing, you are refusing to hear what the scripture says about you, about the real meaning of Christmas, and that is this, that you are spiritually powerless to change anything, anything whatsoever. You are refusing to see that the true meaning of Christmas is not that the light starts with you and it goes up to heaven because you are good enough. The answer to Christmas or the the message of Christmas is the light starts here and has to come down all the way to where you are. Why? Because you are too weak. You are too powerless. You have no strength. You have no ability spiritually. Have we learned? Have you learned? Have I? Have you learned anything about the pandemic? I don't know all the reasons why God has brought that on the world, but here's one of them I can guarantee you, that you're not that smart. You're not that powerful. You have nuclear weapons and all these weapons of war and all these things, and you can't fight a virus. And it's taken you all these months to even come close to a vaccine, and all these people have died. Don't you get it? God wants to have you understand this Christmas, the true meaning of the Christmas story, and that is this, that you are weak. You're sitting here this morning. We all are. We're wearing masks, and we're six feet apart. Why? Because we're powerless to stop this thing. And we don't like it. We don't like it. I remember when I was, we first got married, Chris and I, in South St. Paul, Minnesota. We lived in a parsonage right behind the church. And I remember one day, Chris was in really, really bad pain. I didn't know at the time, but she had a kidney stone. And so she was in such pain that we were going to have to go to the emergency room. And I remember... She it was a pretty stiff stairway up to that attic, our bedroom attic up there. And so she came down, she got down to the bottom of the stairs, and she just fell on the floor and just crumpled up into a little ball. I, you know, that'll, that'll freak you out a little bit. So I called the 
the paramedics, the emergency, and they all came, and they came into the house. They brought the gurney into the house. They rolled it over because she was still in the same spot on the floor. And she got there. I made the call all the time. It took them to get there. She hadn't moved one single bit. You know why? She couldn't. She couldn't even get herself off the floor. They had to pick her up off the floor, put her on the gurney, and take her out. Twelve years ago, I think, twelve years ago, I had to have my appendix out. Now, my dad had his out when he was twelve. My son Lance had his out when he was twelve. And I thought, I'm forty, well, I'm forty-something, and um, um, I'm way past worrying about that. Wrong. After one of the services, I gave announcements. I went in the back. I felt awful. So I said, I'm going home. I took my son Will with me. I felt really awful. And I got home, not to be graphic, but I threw up, and I threw up, and I kept throwing up. And you know how, basically, you at least feel better for a while after you throw up? Not me. I didn't feel, I felt worse. So I take him to the ER. By the time I got to the ER, they put me in a wheelchair, and I had gangrene, believe it or not, in my, my appendix. They had to cut it out. He took pictures of it to tell me how bad it was. But I remember sitting in the wheelchair, waiting for someone to come and, and deal with my situation. And when they came to deal with me, my son was there, they had to get me out of the wheelchair. I was in so much pain, I couldn't even get out of the wheelchair on my own. They had to take me out of the wheelchair, put me on the gurney, and take me away. I, I remember those two stories. You know why? Because it's a terrible feeling that you are so bad off that you can't even do what you normally, you can't even get up, you can't walk, you can't do anything. Have you ever been in that situation? You ever felt that way? It's one thing to feel it physically, but here's what God says. I, I want you to feel it spiritually. Do you understand where you are? Do you understand anything about the darkness in your life? And that's why Jesus had to come, and he had to fight a battle, and there had to be a victory. But it's not the way you think. He didn't come in power to overcome your sin. He came to win a victory like that of Midian, like Gideon. He wants to show you this, that the victory over the greatest problem and darkness you have is Jesus Christ and his victory that he did when he died on the cross for your sins. So Christmas joy comes through this, when you understand that the great triumph of Jesus comes through weakness. But secondly, if you look in verse 5, it reads, for every, this is the second four, see the little four? For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See it? Every boot, every garment, those are the things you dress up when you wear, you go to war. You have your armor on, you have your garments on for war, you have your boots on. He says, someday, the prophet says, Isaiah, someday all of those things about war, all the soldiers, all the armor, all the things that go with it, see, they're not going to be any more fighting. There's not going to be any more battles. There's not going to be any more war. Isaiah echoes that thought when he says in his prophecy in chapter 2, verse 4, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. This is on the plaque outside the United Nations building in America. Strange, isn't it? And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah says when the, when the Messiah comes and he rules, you know what he's going to bring? Peace. There's going to be no more weapons, no more war. That's hard for us to imagine, especially when you're an American. 
Just one example, from 1722 to 1869, America has made 374 treaties with the American Indians, and all but for two, we have broken every single one of them. Every one of them. And I can't even tell you the worldwide treaties between countries beyond America and other countries of the world. You know how many thousands of treaties have been made and how few of them have ever held to be anything at all? You know why? Because Christmas means that the only way that we could ever have peace, the only way that we could have no more war is through the Prince of Peace. It's through God. Alec Motyer, who is the commentator I've been reading this week, he said this about the phrase, will be burned. It sounds like it's a future verb, but in reality, in the Hebrew, it's actually a past tense verb, and it should read, has been burned up. And you might say, well, why does that matter? Here's why it matters, because it's a future event, but God sees it as something that's already done. Even though it's not 700 years till Jesus the Messiah will come from Isaiah's prophecy of Christmas, God sees it as if it's already been done. And so Matya writes this, the war is over, but the people have not fought the battle. The people enter the battlefield only after the fighting is done. Do you see his point? That there is this great treaty, and peace happens, and the nations aren't warring against each other, and the last battle has been fought. But God's people who reap all the benefits from that, that peace, that permanent treaty, it's because but they never did anything to earn it. God did it all. He did it all. We only entered the battlefield after the battle was done. And so let me put it in Gideon terms. We're not just outnumbered as sinners, 135,000 to 300. We are outnumbered 135,000 to one. And can I say something more? And you and I, we are not even the one. The one is Jesus. He's the one. Because God wants you to know you are too weak. You are not strong enough. You cannot save yourself. The battle has been fought for you. It has been won for you. <coughs> and so our hymn book and the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says this. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? You know, you see what he's saying? If I could repent all day long, if I had a zeal to constantly be repenting of my sins and asking God to forgive, if, if my tears would forever flow, if I could constantly, I mean 24-7, 365, if I could feel bad about my sin and do the right thing and cry over it, if I could do all that, wouldn't that save me? Wouldn't that be light? And here's what the song says. All... All could never sin erase. Thou must save and by thy grace. He says you can repent all you want. You can try to be good all you want. You can cry over your sin all you want. It will not save you. It's all of grace. See, so the great treaty of peace, the real peace that our world is looking for, and perhaps this morning, you yourself are seeking. See, this victory is not our accomplishment. It is not achieved by our morality, not our good works, not our religiosity, not our charitable giving. Christmas means that God offers us the gift of grace, something that we could never achieve, never achieve in and of ourselves. 
So where do you get Christmas joy and how do you know that you have it? He says through the great triumph of Jesus Christ, through the great treaty of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and lastly, if you'll notice verse six, the third time he uses a little word for, he says, Christmas joy comes through the great truth about Jesus. And here's that truth. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you and I in our entire lives, the answer to all of that is a child. It's a child. God's saving power is so great that all the big shots of this world can be defeated by God coming into this world as a baby in a manger. And so verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. He didn't come into this world powerful. He didn't come as the ruler. He didn't come in a military way, but he came as a child. See the parallel in Hebrew, the word to us? Unto us. See to us? A child is born. He's going to repeat it because he wants to say the same thing a different way. To us, a son is given. In the passage of the prophecy, the Messiah is called a child. If you read very carefully and look at Matthew chapter 2 in the infancy narrative of Jesus when he's a small child and a baby and a, a young little boy, the word child is used, never using Jesus' name. The word child is used to describe him eight times in the narrative of Matthew 2. You know why? Because I think it's to mean for us an echo that it is the child, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ child. We sang about him this morning. He is the answer to all of our problems. It is he, the baby in the manger, that is to be the light of the world. And there's no happenstance that the light that shines from heaven in the star it says came and stood over where the young child lay see the point was this this is the darkness and this is the light it's the one in the manger he's the light he's the answer to your problem see to us a son is given jesus is god's christmas gift to the world it's been given it says Jesus is God's Christmas gift to every single one of us in this room. But unfortunately for the world, Jesus is not on their Christmas list. It's not something they really even wanted. Do you do Christmas lists at your house? We tried to this year. So we had, you had to do this, put a name, what you wanted. You had to tell me exactly what it was. Then you had to put an internet link so I could see a picture of it. And then you had to put them in priorities. If you're going to get five, I want to know what's first, second, third. I don't want to be buying number five for you and you say, well, I really wanted this. So you put the stuff on the Christmas list. You know why? Because you really want it. Can I tell you this? Jesus isn't first on the world's Christmas list. In fact, can I be honest? He didn't even make our Christmas list. He's not on it. And you know how disappointing that is to people? Have you ever got a Christmas present that you didn't want? I mean, be honest. I mean, you gave your parents or somebody the Christmas list, and you're going like, are you serious? You're under the tree. We allow shaking in our house. I don't know if you do. But you shake it a little bit like this. You pick it up, you do this, and you're kind of like, you know. I even try to take the corner of the paper off when my wife catches me. So you shake it, and you go, oh, yeah, I know this. You know your list, and I'm shaking it. Like, Which one on the list could this be? And you're thinking about it. And then on Christmas Day, you get it up, and you're excited. You think it's your number one gift, and you open it up, and you go like, it's not, it's not anything on the list. <laughs> And you're, going, you're thinking in your mind, you don't say it out loud, but you what in the world happened? Why do we do lists? 
right? And then, and then you say what everyone says. You look at the present you didn't want, you go, oh, 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 that's really nice. It isn't, but you feel polite and you have to say it, right? And so the world, you know what? God has given them a gift. A son is given and they've shaken it, and they know their list, and the world knows what they want, and they shake it, and then when the, the Christmas day comes, and they open up, and it's Jesus, and they go, oh, that's nice, I guess, because they didn't really want him. You know why? Because they expected something or someone to come with power, see? And, and that's why verses 6 and 7, and we'll cover this next week, are all filled with this government terms and military stuff and all that sort of thing and titles for kings. Why? Because here's the world's expectation. When they opened the Christmas present from God, you know what they expected from him? They expected him to come into the world with power to destroy all the evildoers, of which they don't include themselves, of course. They expect God to come into the world with power. You know what kind of power? To nullify all the people who cause them problems in this life, in their life, and, and don't really give them the things they want. And so teens say that parents are their problem. And then parents say, you know what, it's my teens, my children that are the problem. And then employees say, you know what my problem is, it's my boss. They're so demanding, and they don't give me the money that I deserve, and I, I missed out on that promotion, and, and that's the real problem. And Americans say, you know what the real problem is? It's government. And the Democrats will say it's the Republicans, and Republicans will say it's the Democrats. Someone will say, you know what the real problem is? That this pandemic is killing me financially and people's businesses are closing and they don't have enough money. And you're really hoping that for Christmas you get another stimulus check. And, and on and on the list goes. See, my real problem is I need a better job or my friends aren't that great and I wish my family would really step it up and my marriage is... And, and you name it. But see... The world would say this, if I want to have Jesus come into my life, then I expect him to give me the gift that I need. I expect him to have power to solve my problems. But again, in contrast, the Bible analysis of the problem that is really the biggest in your life is very, very different from any of those. See, the gift under the tree for the first Christmas from God it wasn't a power gift. It was a weak gift. Someone who came in weakness to die, it didn't have great wrapping on it, and the bow wasn't that big. And when you shake it, you didn't have a lot of expectations because it wasn't that much. And when you opened it, many people, are, as they come to church and hear messages, they're kind of disappointed. You know why? Because it isn't what they expected, because they expected God to come in and solve world problems and even more importantly so, my problems. And the reason why we don't want that gift is because we think our problems and the source of them are out there, not in here. We think the light has to come from here to there instead of from there to here. And we don't understand that our biggest problem is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. To us, a son is given. Can I say as I close today? He says... A son is given. And it's not just to let us know like some sort of, um, you know, the revealing in a baby, 
when someone's having a baby, they have a revealing. Oh, I want, here's God's revealing at Christmas. Oh, you know, the Messiah's going to be a boy. That, that's not the idea. It says a son is given. See, that is a verbal description of God's relationship to everyone who would sit on the Davidic throne from David on. When David took the throne in 2 Samuel 7, 14, here's what God says would describe his relationship with David and everyone in his line from then on out. Here's what God says in, in, in 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God says that's so, so when God talks about the person who sits on the throne of David, he says, it's my son. And so here's what Isaiah says. You know what the prophecy is? It's not just a baby would be born in this world. It's not that we just get joy because of a baby boy who was coming to the world because he's not just any baby. And he's not just a child. He is God's son, see. He is God's king, and that's why he says the great truth about Jesus, this truth will give you joy. That he came in weakness, but he wasn't weak. He was God's son. See, it looks like weakness being born in a manger, being in Bethlehem and from Nazareth and spending your time in Galilee. But he's not. He's really the king. Now, he would be crucified as king, and it would be the weakest act looking that were possible in his entire life. But God wants you to know that this Messiah, who looks so weak from beginning to end, is really the most powerful person who has ever lived on the face of this globe. He's the king. He's the one who has the right to sit on the Davidic throne. And in verse 7, he says, and he will sit there, listen, forevermore. He is the eternal king. He is not just the king of Israel. He is the king of the universe. But Christmas must ask us the question, listen, for everyone here this morning and under the sound of my voice, is he your king? See, But for you to submit your life to him, for you to lay your life at his feet and say, God, I want you to know that if I'm ever going to have joy, it's because of you and having a relationship by faith in you and what Jesus did for me when he died and rose again. See, you would have to submit to that. You'd have to say, God, I'm too weak. I have to come to you. And I'd have to say, all my hope is on Jesus and, and, and a baby that came in a manger and a peasant who lived a perfect life and a son of God who died on the cross for my sins. See, he is the king. But is he your king? And it's not until you are willing to submit your life completely to him, to call on him and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And you died on the cross to pay my sins. And I can't bring my light up to yours. You have to bring your light down to mine. And I can't be moral enough. I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous enough. I need you. You. And all the weakness that you did. I need, here's the power I really need. I need the power of your forgiveness. That's the power that Christmas talks about. And if you've never had God bring to bear in your life that power, you'll never know lasting joy and peace. But you can. You can. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that he is the king, that he is the Lord and Savior, that he lived and he died for your sins, and he rose again to make you righteous for your justification would you put your faith and trust in him? He is God's Christmas gift to you.
Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around this morning, if you're watching on live stream, if you're here in person this morning, the real true meaning of Christmas, the light isn't within you, but the darkness is. And it's a deep darkness. It's a depravity darkness. It's a sin darkness. And can I be honest with you? And here's the message of Christmas, and you can't beat it. It will overwhelm you and overcome you. You are outnumbered. You cannot, you cannot win this battle. But Jesus can. He can. He's the king of the universe. And he came, and he lived, and he died for your sin so that he could be the light of the world and the light in your world. But this morning, for that to be true, for you to have Christmas joy, you'd have to repent. You'd have to let God rebuild and exchange your foundation in life for his, your source of joy for his, your darkness for his light. And you'd have to say, and you're my only hope. My hope is Jesus. I'll be here after the service this morning. I'll be here all week long. If you'd ever like to come in and talk about how you can find Christmas joy in Christ Jesus, please don't hesitate. Even today, you come and let God change your life. Father, we thank you. We're going to sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Father, we're going to sing songs this Christmas season about Jesus and the baby and the manger and the joy, but it was all going somewhere. It's going somewhere. It's going to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus dying in our place to being our only hope, our only Savior. May I pray for those who are today here, Lord, may they realize they cannot save themselves. It's all of grace. May that grace flood the souls of many this morning, as many as you've ordained to eternal life, May you grant them repentance that they might be born again unto this living hope. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.